Hey, good people. This is your N.I. Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, I'm here to talk about identification again. <laughs> and I did an episode about a month ago. I think I titled entitled it Identification. It was windy. Um... I had listened to a YouTube clip um, from somebody that I regard. I think it was the INTJ academic. I'm not 100% sure. I think it was him, though. Somebody I referred to as the INTJ academic. Um, And he was talking about not identifying with your personality type. And then there's been another episode from another content generator, the husband and wife team I talk about. They didn't show also talking about not identifying with your personality type. And I get that at 80%. Um, But I have a counter argument to that. It's a counter argument I've been wanting to make. And I think in the episode that I did a month ago, I attempted to make that argument. Except it was windy, it was scattered, and I don't know why, I just wanted to come back to this concept again and give some academic support for why I think it's okay to identify with your personality type. I want to make a counter-argument that it's okay identify with your personality type <laughs> and I've already attacked I already attempted to tackle this topic so in some ways this might feel like a repeat but I can guarantee it's not because I have one of my favorite textbooks in front of me that I'm going to be reading from and I did not have that textbook when I was attempting this conversation a month ago I think when I attempted to do the when I did the identification reflection a month ago I focused on identity and community. I haven't gone back to listen to that episode. It was over. It was about over an hour. And I remember when I went to listen to it, I was like, what? <laughs> like, get to the point. So I just never, I didn't feel like it was succinct. And I definitely know that it wasn't grounded in literature because I didn't have that with me. So I'm back with one of my favorite textbooks. Um, it's entitled Social Psychology. I've read from this book before. And some of the stuff that I'm going to read today, I've read before. Because I did an episode back in April or June. It was one time when I was traveling. It was either April or June. And it was an episode called The Self. I've done a number of episodes relating to The Self. But the one I did back in the, in the spring was relate. I used a, this book. So there might be a little overlap between those two episodes, the self and identification. And I'm going to come back and make a counter argument that it is okay to identify with your personality type. Now, just in case I forget to say it later, I do want to say this. It is not okay to over-identify with your personality type. And I, I wonder if that's what these two content generators are ultimately saying. Don't over, don't over identify with it. And that I'm in complete agreement with. 
But to say not to identify with it, no, I'm not in agreement with that. And they may not have been trying to say that. But just in case they were, if anybody says, don't identify with your personality type, there are some of you out there that need to identify with it. There are some of you out there who are who are identifying with your personality type. And I want you to know it's okay, and I want to give you support for why it's okay to identify with your personality type. That's what I'm going to attempt to do in this reflection. It is not scripted. It will not be edited, and I do not have notes. The only thing I have is a book. So I'm going to be taking a book, and I'm going to be reading and then freestyling, okay? <laughs> so we'll cross your fingers and hope that this goes well. <laughs> if you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. And I do so by using uh, two personality theories uh, fairly regularly, and that's the Myers-Briggs, and in that system, I'm an INTJ, or I identify as an INTJ. And then in the Enneagram, I'm an eight. <sighs> and I'd like to just spend a little time with that eight number, because I just have been thinking about how the eight gets me in trouble. And I've also said I was going to come back and do an episode where I differentiate between the INTJ eight and the eight INTJ. I've talked about it, but I have not dedicated a whole episode on it. Nope. I'm sorry. My dog is trying to communicate with me, and I'm like, nope. Okay, so anyway. All right, so this project is um, it's grounded in those two personality systems. I use that to kind of unpack what's going on in my world, my inner and my outer worlds. I do push those two systems together, and I do identify as an INTJ8. I carry that as an identity. I'm going to talk about... I'm not going to talk uh, specifically about why I identify as an INTJ8. I might give it a little bit, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time there because I've done that already. But I just this is part of my disclaimers. I do identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist for almost 30 years. Half of that time has been uh, in leadership. I subscribe to critical race feminism, and that is because I am very interested and sensitive to power in the matrix, as uh, and particularly how it shows up around social constructs like race, gender, class, sexuality, uh, able-bodiedness. I have a sharp sensitivity to it. I don't even program myself to go locating power. It just happens. I also have a degree in, uh, my third degree is in, uh, my, my dissertation studied, uh, focused on power. So that gives me an academic, the academic support for my location of power. But I think because I'm an INTJ and an 8, that TE and that 8 combined gives me the sensitivity. So I have the sensitivity for to locate power, but I also have the academic chops, if you will, to back up what I see as relating to power. So it just helps to tell people that I uh, identify as a critical race feminist. So that if they ever decide, because this is what sometimes people from the majority will do. People from the majority 
will not have a lot of experience with people of the minority. So when they meet one or two people who are of the minority, they'll start comparing them. So if you know another black female INTJ and I talk differently than that individual, you need to know the nuance of me. I'm a type 8. That's another thing that might give variance. I do come from a lower socioeconomic background. I'm from intergenerational trauma. And I do have a deep and intimate relationship with this thing called social power. All right. This project is unedited and it's unscripted. And um, I do think, I don't say this often, but I do think I, I should remind you all that because I'm using personality theory um, to process, if you are not really versed in personality theory, you're going to have to go do some homework. I don't profess to be an expert. I'm not an expert in this area. I do hold an expertise, which is why I know when I'm not an expert. I'm pretty, I'm pretty knowledgeable about personality theory. I've invested about 15 years and into my understanding of personality theory. So I feel fairly confident when I talk about it, but I'm always open to learning more and I'm always open to somebody coming back clarifying if I if I misspeak. And I really want you all to know you need to go do your own homework. The other thing I want you to know is that I'll use a lot of jargon because I'm going to assume that you know how you either know the jargon or you know how to hit the pause button and to go find out some of the jargon that you might need to be aware of that's going to come out, that could come out, would be around um, cognitive function. So you might hear me saying N-I-T-I-F-E-F-I-S-E-S-I. What am I missing? Did I say all of them? N-S-T-F. No, I didn't say N-E. I didn't say N-E. I know I missed some of them, but there are eight of them. Let's do that again. N-I-T-E-F-I-S-E-N-E-T-I-F-E-S-I. There you go. <laughs> and some of you are like, what? Then you need to hit the pause button. Go look up Cognitive Functions, Myers-Briggs, and then you'll have it. Um, and then also in the Enneagram, you might hear me saying sexual, self, social, um, social, sexual, and self-preservation. You need to look that up. Those are instincts. Okay. All right. I'm done. All right. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. So trying to come back to this. I Oh, let me say one more thing. If you want to know more about this project or who I am and why am I showing up um, in alias form, you can go to my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. Okay. All right. So I have in the book, Social Psychology, and I'm going to be, I have some pages marked off. And I'm just going to read, I'm going to go between reading and then talking. Reading and then responding, okay? Um, yeah. All right, here we go. All right, I'm going to start off reading a section that's titled Self-Knowledge. And how we know the self, okay? So I'm going to read now. There are several sources of social information that we use to forge our self-concept. One comes from our view of how other people react to us. These, reflect, these reflected appraisals shape our concept 
shape our self-concept. And I'm going to pause there just for a second because this idea that we have to have a self-concept is really, I won't say it, I don't know if I want to say it's at the heart of my counter-argument that we can't identify with personality theory. I don't know if it's at the heart, but it's relevant that we have a self-concept. What it means to be human is to have a self-concept. So what is going to give a person their, their sense of self? What is going to do that? And I think we were accidentally born into the bodies that we were born into. Well, some people may say it was divine, right? Okay, so, okay, let me change that. We, let me let me just, because I, I think I'll fall into a rabbit hole if I try to talk about acts, birth by accident or birth by di, um, divine order. That's interesting, isn't it? Oh, my goodness, I want to sit there and unpack that. But nonetheless, let me stay focused. <laughs> however, however we got here, whether it was by divine order or by accident, we were born into a body. We were born into a family. And we were born into a social order. We had no control over that. But that birthing then denotes a sense of self as well. But we didn't control it. We didn't choose it. And what I said in the previous episode on identification, one of the things I love about identifying with these personality types or personality systems is that it gives an element of control to counter that which we did not control. I did not control the body that I was born into, the family I was born into, the socioeconomic state, or the political conditions. Now, I said in that other episode, I'm an African-American woman. I'm proud of that. But I didn't choose that identity. I embrace it. I didn't choose it. Does that make sense? And unfortunately, that saying I'm a black woman has so many connotations to it that I don't choose. So I spend most of my life navigating those connotations of what it means to be a black woman. Now, we can talk about the, there are four stereotypes that are pretty researched that are Um, assigned to black women and I'm I'm as a black woman I'm in the world navigating those stereotypes constantly it's like second nature to me um, in the tra- I was in training this week I've been in a lot of training and one of the, oh my god if I tell you guys about this this is going to send me in a rabbit hole oh my goodness I'm just going to say it I'm not going to unpack it I'm going to come back later I'm going to try um, in this particular training, they're trying to say that when you're coaching another, because I'm being trained as a, for a coach, I'm doing two, two different, I just, in the last two weeks, I've been a part of two different trainings, but this particular training is about training me to be a, what's called a cognitive coach, coaching somebody. All right. And there, this training is saying that when you sit to coach somebody, you're not just coaching based on what is being stated, that there are a lot of invisibles. There are things that we bring to the conversation. There are things that we bring to the coaching relationship that you, the coach has to be mindful of. And, and even if you're not conscious of it, there are things you bring to the, co- the coaching conversation. 
And, um, and so they had us take this, like this test, it wasn't a personality test, but it was a test to determine if you are what's called field dependent or field independent. Now I already knew about what, what this thing called field dependency because of my studying on stereotypes for black women. And the short end of this conversation, not the training, I want to come back and tell you how I tested and how I, so I tested in a particular way. And then I wanted to take the results of that test and connect it to my, uh, my knowings or my understanding in terms of Myers-Briggs. Oh my gosh. So I have to do that at another time, but field dependency connects to not only this thing called cognitive coaching, but my research on the stereotypes for black women. And because most people are what's called field dependent, most people are field dependent, which means you navigate the the world based on your environment. You use your environment to navigate. That's the short end of it. On your sense of upright. Well, if black women are bombarded with these stereotypes, oftentimes this theory is of field dependencies that we're going to align ourselves to one of those four stereotypes until you become conscious of those stereotypes and you develop some uh, capacity or competencies in terms of refuting, negating, disrupting those stereotypes. Okay. So (laughs) there was a lot there. All right. So coming back to this text saying that the number one, not number that self-knowledge comes from um, how other people react to us. We have to have a sense of self. I'm saying that our bodies and that the bodies in the world that we were born into will give us a sense of self. But because of what's in the outer world and because of the messages that are associated with our bodies, that are associated with our income, you know, our socioeconomic level, that may not be a way that we want to identify that's healthy for us. Those messages, let me read that again. There are several, I'm reading you guys, there are several sources of social information that we use to forge our self-concept. One comes from our view of how other people react to us. So other people react to us based on our bodies, based on our socioeconomic standing, based on our families, based on the region we're born into. They are going to react to us. Now, black women aren't the only people who have stereotypes given to them. Not at all. Not saying that at all. But because black women are at the intersections of two minority groups, or two groups that are in our society that don't that don't hold a lot of power. It's really it's an important it's a reasonable place to consider how black women are navigating through the world, responding to how let me say that differently, how black women are navigating through the world with a sense of self based on how other people react to us. Hot damn, that's so good. That is so good right there. I guess just stay right there. So in this textbook, one of our ways of seeing the self, one way of, that we understand ourselves is by how other people react to us. Okay? 
Because of the matrix and how we assign power to different constructs, black women are both, but we're black. That's a demographic, right? People respond to us based on being black. And then people respond to us based on being female. Right? Two different points of power, but at the intersections. And what I've been reading about as a critical race feminist, one of the reasons why critical race feminism is important is because it helps us to understand legally. Like if we, when you look at law, like people have to, when you take something to court and you're making, you're, I don't know how to say it, I don't know how to say it. Um, you're trying to make a legal argument. You're trying to pursue a legal case. And then they found that when black women try to use research or make an argument grounded in race, that race only helped to explain part of the phenomenon. When they tried to take on the argument of being female, female only explained part of the phenomenon. But they found that in the court systems, courts did not want to consider black women as both black and female, as though they're contending with two separate experiences. But we are. Now let's add on black, female, and queer. Or black, female, and un and um under undereducated. I hate saying that, but when I say undereducated, I'm talking about formally educated. Black female and being affluent, black be female and being travel. I mean, you, there are so many ways that we can layer that thing. But the point is, the point is, we are interacting in a world that is responding to us. Because of our bodies, because of our experience, our social experiences. And we have to learn to navigate that. And some of us who are field independent, we do a better job at navigating our identities. But those of us who are field dependent can easily get caught up in owning a self that is ascribed to us because of how other people are responding to us. Okay? All right. I'm going to get back to the text. So, it's just, I really could just stay right here, you guys, but here's the deal. So, I think my, one of the points that I want to make is that we can have an identity based on how people react to us. And that may not be the most advantageous for us. Okay? So, that's one argument for identifying with personality diet personality type. That's just one. Okay, let me keep reading. A second social source is the comparison we make with other people. Self-knowledge comes from the social comparison process by which we compare our own reactions, abilities, and attributes to others. By which mm, we do this because we need to Mm -mm. We do this because we need accurate information so that we may succeed. That's powerful. We need to know if we are good athletes or students or race car drivers so that we may make rational choices. Social comparison is a control device 
because it makes our world more predictable. My God, there's a lot there. So basically, this text is saying that having a... Um, there's another way we use, there's another source of information that we use to understand the self. And that is in what, how we compare ourselves to others. I think that's saying, it's saying a couple of things in that, how we compare ourselves to others, our abilities, our sense of reality, because we want to be good at whatever it is that we do. So this idea of being good and being successful is relative to someone else. So we look at other people to help us to understand who we are. Now, does that mean that we do that because we need to feel superior? That's kind of gross, but according to this text, we do this because we need accurate information so that we may succeed, right? So having a sense of success, (laughs) I don't know how you can break that. I don't know another way to break that down. If I succeed, that means I'm out ahead of someone in front of somebody else. It doesn't mean I'm superior, no, but it does mean I'm I'm successful. I do think that whole idea of comparison denotes that there is, that we see ourselves in relation to other people. Being more than, being less than, as good, good enough. Not good enough, right? All of that also informs our sense of self. When I take that to the personality systems, that's powerful for me. Because in a personality theory, let's take a look at Myers-Briggs. There are 16 types in the Myers-Briggs system. Okay? It's an, it's an oversimplification oversimplification because there are more than 16 types of people. But this system says there are 16 types of personalities. I can look at that system and say, okay, I am different from 15 other types and I can see how I'm different. That helps me to understand the world. It helps me to understand when I'm interacting with people, how they may look at a situation different than how I might look at it. They might have different needs than I have, than the needs I have. That's important. That's, there's, to me, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and it also tells me that while I might be swimming in a sea of differentness, if you will, that there are people that are going to get it, that are going to process similar to how I process, who are going to need something similar to what I need. And so while I might be different over here, I am alike over there. And even if I never come across people in real life that I'm alike, I know that they exist out there in the world. And that's important for my sense of self to succeed, right? To feel a sense of success. And to make the world make sense. Make, I like saying this, make it make sense. <laughs> the personality system helps to make the world make sense. Okay. All right, moving on. I'm going to go back to reading. A third source of information comes from the self-knowledge Gain by observing our own behavior. This uh, uh, Daryl Ben, who's a particular researcher, suggested that people really do not know why they do things. 
So they simply observe their behavior and assume that their motives were consistent with their behaviors. This is so powerful for me. Someone who rebels against authority may simply observe her behavior and conclude, well, I must be a rebel. Therefore, we may obtain knowledge of ourselves simply by observing ourselves behave and then infer that our private beliefs must coincide with our public actions. I'm going to stop there. There's more. There's more there, but I'm going to stop there. Uh, because I think that's the, I want to go back to the point that I said was powerful. So this idea between motives and behaviors is so, so significant, so significant, which is one of the reasons why you, when you're trying to type people and we're like, oh, they're not really, you know, I've talked about this as a pet peeve of mine when someone, um, so there's a person on, um, YouTube that I follow. His name is Frank James. If you guys are into personality theory, I know you know who he is. He's so cute and he's so adorable and he's funny. He's just quirky, but he identifies as an INFJ. I think the last time I checked, he was identifying as an INFJ. There's another young lady that I follow periodically who identifies as an INFP and she calls herself the type police, (laughs) the type cop. And so she has come back and said, she doesn't really think he is uh, an INFJ. So there, but there are people out there who do it all the time. If you read the comments and you go into these chat rooms, they're always like arguing. They're not this type because they're basing their type, their their, their assessment on behave a person's behaviors. But really, it's, especially as relating to Myers Briggs, as um, on those cognitive functions. Cognitive functions don't automatically roll out to set behaviors. I think an argument could be made that cognitive functions can be connected to motives. I think an argument could be made, but not behaviors. Now, and I think that if I had to really argue that, I would say cognitive functions alone do not determine motives. I want to say that there's some instinct happening with the old brain um, that really there are there are there's a lot that go into behaviors. So let me just leave it there because I'm I'm about to fall into a rabbit hole. Um, there's a point that I wanted to make in saying that. Hold on one second. Okay, so if I was going to keep reading this text, this text goes on to talk about the value of introspection. But I think personality theory gives us a way to look at our behaviors, to look at our uh, motives, to look at our values, to better understand who we are. I want to go back to the first point about how people react to us. And those of us who are trying to navigate negative reactions when you are consistently bombarded with negative perceptions of the self, negative reactions. One of the reasons why a person can become field dependent is they don't have the ability to look at themselves, look at their own behavior. So like, what did the textbook say? Um, where the, the person might say, may look at her behavior and say, well, um, somebody who rebels against authority might look at herself and say, well, I must be a rebel. Well, are you right? So 
in order to really understand the self, you have to look, we look at the behavior and then we infer. But sometimes our toolbox for making inferences are limited. Our toolboxes are limited. Mm -mm. Our toolboxes are given to us by the social world. So if your toolbox is filled with those negative stereotypes, so then you see your behavior and then you start introspecting and inferring, making meaning out of your behavior, and all you have is this negative toolbox, then you're going to see yourself in a negative way. Some of us come from families that said positive things to us that were where we were growing up. So we see our behavior and then we start analyzing our behavior through the lens of that positive messaging. Some of us from intergenerational trauma were told negative things about ourselves. When we see our behavior, then we begin to interpret our behavior through those negative messages. God knows I did. And I was trying to talk to people this week during the training or even my aunt, uh, I don't want to open that up because that's that's going to take me into a different reflection. But my aunt called. I called my aunt yesterday. And she was feeling kind of low, and and um, she was low because of two things that had happened in her world. But then, as she was trying to unpack how she was feeling to her sisters, one being my mother, her two sisters gave her feedback that made her feel worse. But they, but she felt bad because she knew that the feedback they were giving her wasn't because they were trying to make her feel bad. They were really trying to help her. And I really do want to unpack this story because there's a lot there. But what I try to tell her is this is the reason why I study personality theory. Because we act a certain way. We have certain actions, certain desires that the people in our world can't help us understand because they just don't know it because they're wired differently. So if I take my wiring and I try to help you understand who your behavior, you, you say something, you feel something, you do something. And then I try to help you to understand why you do say or feel that thing by through my wiring, that's not going to help you feel good. It's going to make you feel worse because you're not wired the way I am. So my wiring can't help to explain why you did X, X, Y, and Z. But that happens all the time. And I told my aunt, I said, this is the other thing. This is like the, I think this is the, probably the most important reason why I have fallen into personality theory. Because before I had access to personality theory in my toolbox, I think through my training as a social scientist, I got exposed to what's called abnormal psychology. And abnormal psychology was really the only variance, was the only tool that I had to explain variance in people, in their behaviors, their 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 words and their attitudes or their desires. I'm talking about at extreme levels. That's all I had. But personality theory can come and give a more neutral explanation. It's neutral. It's not good or bad. We're just wired differently. We have different cognitive functions. 
So when I was trying to help my aunt, like, so my aunt then told me the thing that she told my aunts. My aunt told me the thing that she told her sisters. And then I was able to give that thing back to her. I was able to give her an explanation, not through my wiring, not through their wiring, but through her own wiring, because I've studied it. Not to say I was exact on it, but I was able to give her back a piece of her in a way that felt inviting, welcoming, allowing her to be connected to who she really is. Because the feedback that her sisters gave her did not feel familiar. It didn't feel like it was really her. And then she was wrestling between embracing that feedback that they got because they they love her and she knows that they love her, but their feedback did not feel good. Now, I really could take this conversation and go down another rabbit hole. And at the risk of doing so, let me say this. So one of the things that this particular aunt has said to me, and my other another aunt says it to me too, but this one says it a lot, and I don't feel like it's positive, even though it's being said as being positive. So when I gave her that feedback back, and I gave it to her through her wiring, and I gave it to her in a neutral way, in a way that and it felt good for her, and she said, thank you. She said, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I wouldn't have been able to explain that because I'm not as smart as you. She says that all the time. And I don't feel like that's a compliment. And I don't know if these people say that to me because they think it's a compliment. And the reason why I'm highlighting it is because, I, like I told you guys, I was in a training this week. On Thursday, while I'm sitting on one side of the room, and this woman is sitting on another side of the room, I'm going to call myself Sally. That's not my name. We're going to call myself Sally. This woman, when the facilitator of the training asks a question, this woman raises her hand and out of her mouth, again, we're not sitting anywhere next to each other. I don't consider us friends. I maybe have had one conversation with her in this time of all this training because we've we've done six days of training so far. And out of her mouth, to answer this question from that was given to us by the facilitator, she says, when I listen to Sally talk, I think how smart she is and how I'll never be able to catch up to her. And that made me, I want to say uncomfortable, but in the moment, I didn't, I didn't have a feeling. I was... <laughs> I was trying to go through my roller, like a mental Rolodex to identify what I was feeling in that moment. I couldn't feel that. I couldn't name it. It wasn't until later that I realized I was uncomfortable by that. This woman, and then I went to ask her, like, like, what? Why did you do that? <laughs> and she was like, oh, that's a compliment to you. Really, was it? So anyway, that was that. Um... All right, let me get going so I can, um, I want to go to some other parts of the book. So, so basically, let, before I move on, so this part of the book just saying that there are three ways that we, three ways that we know the self. We know the self by how other people respond to us. 
We know the self by how we compare ourselves to other people. And we know the self by watching our own behaviors. And not only watching our own behaviors, but inferring. But in all three of those, if we don't have healthy tools, that our sense of self can be relegated to an unhealthy understanding. And I'm saying the personality systems give us a healthy way of seeing the self. And if you need to identify with that, if that's the only healthy way that you have access to see the self, it's okay. Go ahead and do it. Now, is that the only way that you should see the self? No. Nope. That's why I'm going to say you shouldn't over-identify with the personality system. But if it becomes one way that you identify... Give yourself permission to do that. I know that the people we listen to on YouTube, on podcast land, I know we respect them. I know that I do. But I'm offering a counter argument. It's okay. It's okay to use the personality system as another tool to understand the self, especially if you were born into a body or a world that give, that's giving you unhealthy frames for the self. All right? All right, I'm going to come back. Let me let me flip some pages. Give me one second. Okay, so I just flipped maybe 10 pages. So I'm in a different section. And this section is entitled Self-Esteem, Evaluating the Self. And um, I'm just going to read a little bit here. Our feelings about ourselves come from many sources. Some perhaps... Some, perhaps most, some, perhaps most, we carry forward from childhood, from our basic self-concepts. Okay, I'm struggling with my reading. Okay, let's start over. Some, perhaps most, we carry forward from childhood when our basic self-concepts were formed from interactions with our parents and other adults. Research in child development indicates that people develop basic feelings of trust, security, and self-worth or mistrust, insecurity, and worthlessness from these earlier relationships and experiences. If you come from intergenerational trauma or trauma in general, and the adults around you in those earlier years were giving you negative messages directly or indirectly, you need a framework that is going to counter that. And if by having a, and if you need to identify with that framework to constantly remind you, I am not those messages, then do that. So for me, identifying as an INTJ8 is critical for me. That's a critical way that I counter the messages from my those earlier adult relationships. I was an observer in the world, in a world where there was a lot of violence and chaos and harm. Being an observer in that world as a child, anytime I began to name the thing that I saw, I was shamed for that. I was judged and punished for that because part of the way that my family has survived intergenerational trauma is by renaming our reality renaming the reality and projecting it out, but never doing anything to disrupt the reality. So as a kid, I didn't know how to play the game 
And that's what the, my family was doing. They were trying to get me to be a part of this ethos that we're going to reframe what we're reframe what we're experiencing and report out something different. But I, my wiring, I couldn't do that. So growing up, being told um, that my perceptions were off. That so two things. I was told I was too sensitive, and that I was misinformed. I didn't know that I wasn't in, I wasn't knowledgeable and that my perceptions were off. That's, that's the identity stuff. The infer- that's what fed my identity. But baby, when I started going to school, I think that's, the, you know, that was my degree, social science. That's what it did for me. Because then I could go back and reorganize, not reorganize. Not reorganize the perceptions that I had in the world, be reorganized the messages that I got. And it took a long time to de- decompress from all of that. All right, I take this personal, and I know I'm not the only one out there who's experienced this. And so I have to remember that. So when this lady in this training says, well, I'm not as smart as Sally, and, and she thinks she's giving me a compliment, maybe she was. But my family has gone, oh, this is a point, this is really important for me to share. My family has flipped now. So they can no longer invalidate my perceptions. They can no longer invalidate my feelings. And that's what they did for most of my life until I became degreed. Right? And then when I possessed that third degree, <laughs> and then when I, because when I possessed the third degree, I then started. I don't think it was because I got the third degree. It's just where we were at with technology and social media. I started going out in social media, podcasting, going on Facebook, doing Facebook Live, doing messages, right? And now I have a com- now my family can see that I have a community of people who follow me. My they know that they can't, they cannot, they cannot discredit me anymore. They but they do it in a different way now. They really do. So, hold on. Okay, you guys, there's been about a... F- I took a break. I had to hit the pause button to go attend to my dogs. And so I've been on pause for about 10 minutes. So I'm going to try to drop back in here um, as best as I can. But I want, as I was away and I was just thinking about this conversation, I wanted to come back and say a couple of things. You know, always get it always gets complicated when I talk about my family because of the deep love that I have for them and the, the deep sense of protectiveness that I have, which is one of the reasons why I, I don't do this project under my name because I need to be free to process a lot of this. And it sucks, though. It's just sucky because I don't want to present them in a negative way. I really don't. But I also need to unpack some of of our experiences, my experiences, and I'm connected to the family. And I know before my uncle passed, he's been gone for over 10 years, uh, almost 15 years. And that's something he confided and told me, you know, about just his experiences with the family. And the thing is, it is what it is. 
It is. I've already just talked about that. It's just. A, it's. It's a complicated situation, and it's not something I'm proud of. And I really. I struggle with it. To be honest with you, I struggle with um, when I go into this space where I start unpacking my sense of self as relating to my familial experiences. And it's like, I wish there was not. I'm trying to get to a place where it's not this or that. That I I want to be done with that part. I don't want to have to keep analyzing that because I don't want to keep, I don't want to have to be reminded of those negative experiences. But, and for the most part, I do pretty well. But I think when it's time for me to start talking about the value of personality systems, for me, and understanding how self identity surface, I don't know how to. I don't know how to bypass that part of my my experience. So what does the textbook say? That um, I'm going to go back. Some, perhaps most, uh, these feelings we carry forward from childhood when our basic self-concepts were formed from interactions with our parents and other adults. And this idea that these, these adults and our interactions with them can help us develop basic feelings of trust, security, and self-worth, or basic feelings of mistrust, insecurity, and worthlessness. Like, that's a real thing. You know what I mean? That's a real thing. And it's complicated and it sucks, but it's a real thing that children come up with those basic feelings based on how the adults around them interacted with them. Those adults can love them. Those adults could have made mega sacrifices for these children. But those basic feelings can of mistrust, insecurities, and worthlessness, it comes from the familial experience. I'm sorry. So bringing this back to personality, you know, systems and this idea that our sense of self-esteem is from that earlier time period. Well, what are you going to do to counter that in a meaningful way? I believe personality theory can help you do that. And like I said, if you need to, if you are burdened by a message from your childhood on repeat, having an identity saying I'm an INFJ, that I'm not really this bad person. I'm just an INFJ, right? I'm not an INFJ. I'm trying to try to I'm trying to come outside of my personality type. But I will use my I'm not a person that's trying to necessarily I'm not intentionally trying to see negativity in the in the family. I just happen to see what I see and I'm sorry if it's negative. Right? Um I just have found I don't feel like I'm I don't feel like I'm explaining it to the best of my ability, but that's all I have for now. It really helps to counter the internalized messages that came from, that were negative, to have an identity that comes from a personality system that takes who you are and it neutralizes it. Now, sometimes each personality has some negatives or can have some negatives. We should never use our personality to become fixed, to say, hey, I am this way because this is my personality type and I'm sticking to it. No, that system, that personality system should help you be better in the world, period. should help you be better. And if it's not helping you to be better, then you should just dump it, <laughs> you know. Um, 
I want to keep doing it. I want to do a little more reading and then I'm going to bring closure. I have about four pages that I didn't get to. Okay, I'm reading. Some individuals have characteristics that are stigmatized, marked by society, and therefore they risk rejection whenever those aspects of themselves are recognized. One would expect that culturally defined stigmas would affect a person's self-esteem. Right. So women, NT women, women who are thinkers, like we are hit pretty hard um, by other women. Like, oftentimes we think about men, men don't want us to be thinking. Men don't want us to be thinkers. Okay. All right. I'm not going to argue that. But let's let's have a different conversation. How are women treated, how are thinker women treated by feeler women? I'm talking about thinker as in T-I-N-T-E, those of us who have those functions in the top of our stack. How are thinker women Embraced by feeler women. It's not pretty. I saw that. I see that in my training. That the, You know, I was pretty isolated. And oftentimes I will isolate myself. Now it's just easier. But the last two days, Thursday and Friday, I couldn't isolate myself in that training. The room wasn't big enough. So I, but I, I was isolated. Like I just wasn't connecting. I don't connect. I'm, and I'm in a female dominated profession. There were a lot of men there because there were, principles in a room and of course we allow men to be principals in a female dominated profession but then we're not going to talk about that but <laughs> but it was majority women all right and so when society stigmatizes a, an attribute on you not just the family but society what are you going to do to counter that stigmatiz- stigmatization i think personality theory can help you all right um Let's see. Let me flip some pages here. All right. I'm under a section called self-perception theory. I'm going to do some reading. Self-perception theory, which describes, which explains discrepant behavior by simply assuming that people are not self-conscious processors of information. People observe their own behavior and assume that their attitudes must consist with their behavior. And that's not true. The things that we do don't always uh, match what we deepest, deeply believe. It doesn't. Things that we say don't always match what we deeply believe. And I want to tell you about a coaching conversation I had with one of my teachers um, in the last few weeks. Who was I may have said it already. She was bothered when I told her that I wanted to continue to do the work so that we can get to her core values. And her reaction was, well, if you want to know my core values, all you have to do is ask me. I'll tell you. I believe this, 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 and that. And I sat there and I was like, I just felt such a heaviness, like, oh, my God, that is not how you get at your core values. That's not what I'm talking about. So I made, maybe I made a mistake. I'm not 100% sure if it was a mistake or if it was was what what it needed to be. But I said... Well, I just think sometimes that which we say isn't always what's on the inside of us. And then she came back about five minutes later. She's like, are you saying that I don't know myself? Are you saying that I'm projecting some, I'm, I'm giving false information? Very defensive. Very defensive. And I was like, well, let me think about that for a second. <laughs> like, maybe I am saying that. And if I am, I apologize. This is what I think I'm saying, but I'm going to chew on it a little more. I'm saying that we're not always conscious. 
that there are values that are located in our unconsciousness that I want to know, that I'd like to surface to better understand our, the work that we're doing. And when I said that, she seemed to handle it better. So I was like, okay. That instead of me telling people, well, I want to see your values, your deep values, and how they match with your behaviors, I'm going to say your unconscious values. I don't know if that's going to make a difference because I'm learning that in this work that I'm doing, there's a lot of defensiveness. And it's not even defensiveness because I'm putting them on defense per se. It's defensiveness because, in general, we don't generally have a practice of going inward, going into those deep cavities of the self. So as a coach, I'm not a consultant. Now, when teachers come to me asking for coaching, what they're asking for is consulting. They want me to consult. They want me to give them strategy. They want me to advise them. But this training that I'm going through is like, yo, don't do that. Which is hard because I like to give advice. <laughs> that's what I'm good at it. But I'm really coming to appreciate why that's not the best strategy. The best strategy is to help them go inward to locate their own truths. But that's not where they that's not why they came to me. So I am new to this role and there are a lot of people who don't use this method for a number of reasons. So I'm going to have to do a better job of teaching people about what it is that I do that's different from what a consultant does. I'm not a consultant. I'm a, I'm a cognitive coach. And what I'm going to do is have you go inward. If you're not here for that, that's okay. Then you might want to get, get someone else. So I'm already learning to do that around. So I get teachers who want to talk about the problems that they're having in the classroom. It's because of students. And students, what is on the inside of students, or because of the families that students come from, or the neighborhoods that students come from. And then I'm learning to say, I believe that everything that happens in that classroom is the result of instruction. It's the result of the teacher. If you don't hold that belief to be true, you may not want to access me as your coach. And I think it's fair to give them that choice. Now, the, the, the next thing I want to work on besides the inner, sub, the unconscious truths and, the, um, and the, the place of ownership, I want to talk about race. And I, don't, and I don't know yet how I'm going to do it, but I want to say, because this is the thing. The teachers who, are, who have volunteered to work with me, they're all struggling with black kids. They're all white. All the teachers are white. Student. The organization is predominant is is ninety three percent white. That's not even just predominantly white. That's almost exclusively white. Ninety three percent white. The students that they're talking about are black, and then they have a black coach. I'm I'm black. I mean, we don't have to talk about race. Race has to be factored into this conversation. But, but a lot of them aren't comfortable, and I'm not comfortable. I'm not comfortable yet making them uncomfortable in this particular way. And I know that sounds counterproductive to, that's counterintuitive to, mm, yeah, that's counter, counterintuitive to how I do, or how I work in my primary, my primarily, my primary work, I'm okay with people, making people uncomfortable. I feel like I do it with dignity, right? But I still, I'm like, yo, we're going to talk about this. But in this place where you're inviting me to come and work with you and I'm asking you to go inward, I'm not comfortable 
bringing race up if you're not comfortable yet. Now, some of the teachers are bringing it up on, they're bringing race to me. And I'm like, oh, thank you. That makes this a lot easier. But I am going to get to a place where before I take on the project and they ask me to work with them, I'm going to eventually figure out how to say, I'm going to work with you, but these are the things that you need to be able to become, that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk, you know, and if they don't want to talk about those things, then give them the choice with dignity to opt out. Because I don't want to bum rush them. You know what I mean? I don't want to trick them like, yo, come and feel safe with me. And now let me talk to you about race in a way that you, in, and I know you're uncomfortable with race. Now, if they're, un, if they're not uncomfortable, because a lot, some of my teachers have already done their work, their own work around race and how it's impacting their practice. Then they bring that to me and then I can join them in that conversation. But if they've not done that work and they are adamant that it's not about race, I'm just like, oh, I'm picking my battles. Like, oh, anyway, that's not even what this reflection is supposed to be about. I don't even know why I went there. Oh, I think I went there because I was just talking about the mismatch between what we do, what we say, and what's deep in us and that unconscious realm. And I'm saying just in terms of identification, this conversation on identification, that there's something deep in that unconsciousness that influences who we are. So having an active identity with one of these personality types is just a constant way of conditioning that unconsciousness. I think it's just an, it's a conscious way of conditioning the unconscious, particularly if you have some unhealthiness buried deep in the psyche and you haven't been able to access it all right i'm going to turn some pages we're over an hour i hope you're okay with that um i'm under a section called groups self-identity and intergroup relations i'm going to read uh i don't know how to pronounce this person's name but i'm going to give it a shot <laughs> i can't pronounce it is it Tajvels, Tavels, I'm going to say Tavel, I don't, I'm sure that's not how you say it. Tavel's theory is called self-identity theory and proposes that a number of factors predict one's group's reaction to other competing groups in society. It pertains to what may arise from identification with a social category, membership in a social, political, racial, religious group, etc., it does not say that once we identify with a group, we inevitably will discriminate against other groups. However, SIT does lay out the conditions under which such discrimination may take place. So I don't want to talk about the discrimination piece, although that's important. Like when you start over-identifying with a social category, then you can start looking negatively upon other people. So racial identification is one way we can do that. National identification is another. But I think in the personality community, when we say, I'm an INTJ, right? Now, you guys have heard me say this, right? I, I am hard on the FE users. Anybody who has extroverted feeling... I can go hard on you. But I always am like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and it's not because the FE users are bad. It's just what FE, how it makes me feel. So I'm, I always try to bring it back to myself, right? Like, let's just, let's be honest. It's not about those FE users. It's about you and what you might need from them, right? They're not giving you something that you think you need, right? Um, I will tell you, ESFJs, oh, oh my God. <laughs> 
oh my God. But even then, like now, like I hope to, that I'm mature, that I can look at it as an ESFJ. Like I work with one and I clearly know her strengths. So even though it's like a whirlwind dealing with her, oh my gosh, my mother's an ESFJ. Oh my gosh. But I can, they have an intelligence. There is an intelligence about an ESFJ from the two that I know that I'm like, oh, I definitely want to access it. You know, and if I could just had a, if I had a magic wand and I could carve out that place of intelligence that they have and I, and I didn't have to do with the other stuff, I'd be on it. But I bring all of that up just to say that we are, um, that based on this text, like when you start identifying with a category, it can position you to start judging other people who don't have that category. And I think that that would go to the argument of not identifying. Well, I'm saying don't do that. So instead of saying don't identify with your personality type, here's what I'm going to say. Don't discriminate against other identity types. Don't think that your type is better. That's, that's a better way of saying it. Instead of you saying don't identify with your type, don't use it as an identity. What I'm saying is don't discriminate with other, on, on other types. Don't make yourself superior and other types inferior. Because I think that's what's located in the whole don't identify with your type argument. So my counter argument is you can identify with the type as long as it's making you be better in the world. And being better in the world is not putting other people down. Being better in the world is not thinking that you're superior and other people are inferior. All right, I'm flipping the page. I'm now under a section called why people identity with why people identify with a social category. And I think this is my last page and then I'm going to close. I'm going to read. Clearly some social category good grief, starting over. Clearly some social categories are imposed on us through social act, through accidents of birth and so forth. See the accident of birth is was it an accident? Okay, that's a different conversation. Okay, I want to pick up reading. But identification with that category implies a psychological commitment to the category. Hot diggity dog. I got to pause there, right? So think about it. I'm going to go back to being to identifying as a black woman. And one of the reasons why I absolutely have to add, I'm an INTJ8. I am from a lower socioeconomic background, I'm from intergenerational trauma, and I am a critical race feminist because I don't want to be limited. I don't want to have to commit to what it means to be a black woman. Like, that social category is complicated and... I don't. I feel like I'm about to contradict myself. So if I contradict myself, you guys just just hopefully give me some grace because this is complicated. So I willingly embrace that I'm an African American woman. I don't feel like I have a choice, but I don't have a problem being black and female. I don't have a problem being a woman. I don't have a problem being black. I believe I come from a history of people who know how to persevere, who are resilient, who know how to survive. I'm proud of that. 
I, I, so that's one thing. My the history of resilience to be African American, to be Black in America, to serve to come from a line of people that survived the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, and being stacked in ships where they weren't allowed to go to the bathroom, and there was disease. All of that to survive that, then to go through what's called um, cattle, chattel. I always struggle. Slavery, it's a brutal form of slavery. To survive that, to survive Jim Crow, to have an identity, to literally have a legal and structural identity that you are inferior to white people, to survive that, to survive inferior education. To, to survive a criminal justice system. Like, yes, I'm proud of that survival. I'm, I'm proud of being a part of a community, a, a, category, a social category of people that survived that. I'm proud of that. That's part of me saying I'm an African-American woman. And that that's all. And the female part of that, because I've been doing some reading about... Uh, uh, plantation, oh my God, plantation patriarchy. Oh my God. <laughs> Go look that up. Plantation patriarchy. And so the short end of that, like a lot of times people talk about toxic masculinity, but when you are black, when you're a black woman dealing with plantation patriarchy, that's black men trying to mimic their oppressors. So trying to mimic mimic the power that white men have, which then relegates black women to even a lower status, right? So if, if we live in a racial caste system, then as a black woman, I'm relegated to even a lower status because black men are trying to have some type of status, trying to, trying to um, align themselves with their white male counterparts, okay? So anyway... That's a whole separate conversation. So, yeah, I when I say I'm an African-American woman, every time I say that I'm bringing that history into con- that history into context, into focus, every time I say it. I'm survive. I'm I'm, ta- I'm presenting myself as a survivor. I'm presenting myself as somebody who's resilient, someone who's creative. Right. OK. And. When I keep reading, you're going to understand why I do that, All right? But I'm just saying. So when I say, but identific- identification with a category implies a psychological commitment to that category. Okay. So that's my commitment to saying I'm an African-American woman, the history. There's one other commitment, and that's the c- current context. Not all black women, but most of us will come to the table and have a shared political understanding because we're having a shared political experience. We're experiencing the world politically different than how a white woman would, how an Asian woman would. And we come to the table understanding that in general, there are exceptions, but in general, the okay, so when I say and I'm an African-American woman, I'm saying I have a political experience. And am I committed to that experience? No, I don't want that experience, but I'm committed to disrupting it. 
I'm committed to naming it. I'm not going to be in denial about it. I'm committed to circumventing it. So there is a commitment to it. And that commitment is given to me by way of the category, by way of the class, the, the designation. All right. So I'm going to go back to read, continue to read. So I think when you take that to personality theory, me being an INTJ8, you like when I was going through this with my, my father's death and the funeral and it was just intense. I there was a time where I tried not to be intense. But I was like, no, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an INTJ8. I'm going to analyze the situation. I'm going to take action, and I'm going to see how power shows up, and I'm going to res- resist any kind of power distribution that's harmful. And I was committed to that. And I was embodying me in the wholeness of me. It was really helpful. Even though I don't think that I was in my higher self, it could have been worse had I not been committed to being an INTJ8. It became my lifeline. Now, Here's where the unhealthiness happened during this time. I will be honest. I, I was honest with you guys. I wasn't my best self. That's because the eight was in front of the INTJ. There were oftentimes that eight was out front. When I'm in my healthier self, the eight has to be the, be behind the INTJ. That's what it is most of the time. But I'm in an environment and everybody is warring and it's intense. That eight is like, yo, we're going to analyze this stuff later. Like we're going to come out front and we're taking action. So it just pushed me forward more in action or I was more action oriented than I would be as an INTJ. So and and because I was more action oriented, I was less contemplative. And my best self is to be contemplative first, action second. I have to be that's just what an INTJ is. And I was action first. And that's what denoted the unhealthiness. And it was because that eight was in front of the INTJ, was in front of the, the contemplation. All right. All right. So eight is instinctive and action-oriented. So I hope that makes sense. Um, I'm going to pick, pick up reading. Self-ident- self-identity theory proposes that people apply social categorization to themselves and others to reduce uncertainty in their world and to make their own place clear and predictable. I think I've said that. I've talked about that already. I'm going to keep reading. Because social categories help to define oneself, people identify with those categories that have the potential of enhancing or at least maintaining their self-esteem. We identify because we need to protect our self-esteem. And I think that is, I probably should end it here. Okay, I'm reading you guys. Hold on. Okay, I think I'm going to end it there. Because I'm going to end it there. Let me read that last piece. Because social categories help to define oneself, people identify with those categories that have the potential of enhancing or at least maintaining their self-esteem. You can identify with a personality type if it's going to give you, if it's going to help you with your self-esteem, if you struggle with that. Now, if you don't struggle with self-esteem, good for you. That's wonderful. I, and I'm, I'm not being funny because I have met parents I have met some beautiful parents who have fought like hell to make sure that their kids have self, healthy self-esteem. But if you come from, a, like my parents were young when they had me. And my parents came from 
Both of my parents came from an alcoholic parent, at least one. My dad came from two alcoholic parents. My mom's with my grandfather. And if you read about children that come from an alcoholic parent, or if you read about adult children of alcohol, how do you say it? Adult children, it's AOC, adult children of alcoholic parents. I think that's what it's called. The research basically says that that alcoholism has an impact on that child's psyche, right? So both of my parents had an alcoholic parent and it influenced, and they had me before they had time to really separate themselves from their childhood. They were, they were both 18, when they had me, my dad was going to be 19 a week later. And my mom was going to be 19 a month later. That's pretty young. So they never had an opportunity to decom- decompress, to detox. They didn't. So I was the, so when I talk about those childhood experiences, not me trying to throw them under the bus. That's just what it is. And now I, I'm at 50 and I'm really just now being able to decompress <laughs> You know what I mean? They were 18. Well, they were 19 because my mother hates when I don't give her that extra year. So they were 19, (laughs) you know. So no, I wasn't, I wasn't raised to have, no, I was raised to have a healthy racial identity. Now that both of my parents gave that to me and that's, there's research, uh, there's research about that, that I'd love to come back and unpack at some point, but all you guys, I'm sorry, this is so long. But, um, and I'm closing here. Um, oh my God, I just, I'm sorry it's so long. <laughs> but there were other places of esteem that they actually, it was pretty destructive. And um, I don't want to go into that now. Like there were like unspoken messages that were destructive, but there were also very direct overt messages, comments that were made that had a hit on my esteem. Yeah. And I think I may have told you guys, like when I turned 40, I felt like I heard in the spirit that I had to self-parent. And I never really have dedicated a full episode. I've talked about it, but I've never dedicated a full episode to this idea of self-parenting and why I believe I heard that in the spirit. Because I had to go and undo some things. I just had to undo it. I had to undo some of those messages. If I was going to be better in the world. And personality theory has really helped me to do that. It's given me a. Just a positive way to have a relationship with myself. And in a world where I'm given identities. And I have to have an identity. I don't see that. I don't see what's wrong with including personality as part of my identity. It's not my exclusive identity. No, it is not. And it's not a justification to be shitty in the world. No, it is not. Absolutely not. But if it's going to help me to be a better human, to be productive and to self-actualize, then I'm going to hold that as an identity, along with some of the other identities that I have to contend with. So if you are wrestling with some other stuff, that's not so positive, you need an anchor, give yourself permission to have, to embrace 
this personality system as an identity. I would ask you to like take a couple of them and push them together to give it nuance, right? Let's say I'm an INTJ eight. I think all INTJ should add that other add that enneagram because it just really makes us different. Because I think an INTJ five is fairly different from an INTJ eight. I need to study the INTJ one. <laughs> Ooh, I bet that's interesting. <laughs> Oh, I would love to think about. I want to think about. I don't talk about the INTJ one. Um, yeah, because INTJs will test as either a five or a one. And there are some of us that will test as an eight. So anyway, just give yourself permission to have help in terms of the social, the esteem, to better have a sense of self that's based in something positive. It's nothing wrong with it. We all have a need to be feel good, to be good, to feel good. And if having a personality identity is going to help you to do that, then do it. But it doesn't mean it's a license to be shitty, to be superior. It's not a license for that. Okay? Sorry, you guys, this is so long. If this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this kind of conversation about the self and why we identify as we do to be a part of communities, to understand, to make the world manageable, to make it predictable, to give, to give us a sense of worth, to, give, to help us understand a sense of self, to counter negative messages, if any of that connects to conversations you've had in the world, please take this link and share it with those people, only with those people. Because other people might come to this project and be like, she just talked for an hour and a half about nothing. <laughs> so don't do that to me, okay? Share it with people who will get it, all right? And if my moving about in this reflection has caused some randomness in you, I'd love to hear it. You can find me on my website at com. Facebook, NIDOM Leadership, Twitter, you're NIDOM1, and YouTube, you're NIDOM. Let me give you your homework. Hold on a second. I think I've asked this question before, but I don't think it hurts within, within the context of some new information that I've provided you. How do you identify? And I really want to say, what are the ways that you identify? Because I think we have to carry multiple identities if we're going to be truthful to what does it mean to be human? Because we're not limited to a personality type. I don't care if you put two of them together. I am more than being an INTJ8. But just because I'm more than being an INTJ8 doesn't mean I can't identify as being an INTJ8. It's one of my identities. So I would like to ask you to take a piece of paper and list your multiple identities. And if you are really ambitious, once you list your multiple identities, put it in some kind of schematic map in terms like what's primary, secondary, how, then draw lines, how do those identities influence each other? Because that's how you get to the complicatedness, the, the complicated, the complications, the com excuse me, the complexity. That's how you get to the complexity of it all. So map out your identity, create, an, oh, here it is, create an identity map. There it is, you guys. Take a piece of paper, put those identities on a piece of paper. First, make a list, then arrange them in terms of each other, and then draw lines that connect, make some um, direct and indirect connections. All right, so create an identity map. I really wish I could ask you, if you do it, take a picture and send it to me, but that's so personal, right? 
it's so personal. <laughs> but if you really, really, really want to share, and I don't, I usually ask you not to share your homework assignments, but if you really do want to share, I would love to see a picture of it. Um, I would just be proud of the, to say I helped to inspire that. But you don't have to because this assignment is for you, okay? All right, you guys. It has been a pleasure hanging out with you until I come back. Be well. Bye.